A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're going to be devoting this episode, episode number 12, to chapter 3, entitled Responsibility. This is in the book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom by Martin Haglund, the Swedish philosopher. Excellent book. All right, before we begin, I want to once again go over a few definitions so that we can understand the discussion that we're about to have. First, I want to talk about the definition of what it means to be finite. And I'm taking this, I believe, from chapter one or the introduction of the book. To be finite means primarily two things, to be dependent on others and to live in relation to death. I am finite because I cannot maintain my life on my own and because I will die. Next, let's, let's define what secular faith is. To have secular faith is to be devoted to a life that will end, to be dedicated to projects that can fail or break down. Uh, the common denominator for what he calls religious forms of faith is a devaluation of our finite lives as a lower form of being. This is what the book is against. And today we're gonna to be talking about, again, responsibility. We're gonna be interacting with the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And with that, I give you Ben, who's gonna set us up for the episode. Okay. So this, uh, this chapter, our author, he interacts with Kierkegaard's book, Fear and Trembling, which is a tremendous book. It's written in a pseudonym. It's not obvious that Kierkegaard explicitly endorses uh, everything that's written in that book. Uh, if I understand correctly, um, Kierkegaard was writing in the context of a very Lutheran um, Denmark and at the time of, of, write, of his writing and his life, uh, Denmark was very Christianized. Christianity was very much a default religion, a state religion. And also Hegel's philosophy was considered to be top, top notch and all the clergy were into Hegelian forms of philosophy and theology. And if I'm not mistaken, Fear and Trembling is a book whose purpose is to show that Hegelianism comes up short when it attempts to describe faith and in a sense, Kierkegaard uses this book, Fear and Trembling, to try to, um, to, try to explicate a type of faith that, that is just bonkers, that doesn't make any sense, uh, and, that's, and that a Hegelian philosophy certainly can't make any sense of. Uh, so does Kierkegaard actually endorse this faith uh, as he describes it in this book? Well, it's not quite clear. Uh, I think the author here, Martin Hagland, is aware of these problems. And he draws on some other works of Kierkegaard, such as um, Sickness Unto Death, uh, to see what Kierkegaard's actual views are, but it's always a little bit of a tricky topic. Just so, so with that in mind, we're gonna keep that in mind, uh, that our author here, Martin Hagelin, he's criticizing Kierkegaard's concept of faith and mostly taking out of fear and trembling. And we, we're not quite sure if this is what Kierkegaard actually thinks, but we can leave that question behind for the moment, having, having mentioned it. Um, because I think this critique is devastating and uh, well worth paying attention to. So I'm looking forward to taking a closer look at it and I'll try not to fall into despair along the way. So. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for the introduction. So again, we're gonna be talking about Kierkegaard's concept of faith. And his concept of faith is like, uh, like this amazing armor that's gonna protect you from pain because you're not gonna be able to lose anything ultimately and it protects you from despair. So it's a double win, right? I mean, why would you not want to avoid despair and why would you not want to lose everything? 
in this chapter, he uh, he talks about the passage of scripture in Genesis, that infamous passage in which Abraham Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac, right? So he God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to see if he really loves him, if he's truly devoted, if he really has faith. And so he goes a few days journey, I think, up to some mountain, Mount Moriah, I think. And he uh, he ties him up and he is ready to go. He has the knife ready to swing and just kill him. When I think an angel of the Lord tells him to stop. And then some sheep is caught in a bush nearby or something. And it becomes a substitute for Isaac. And then the text says, now I know that you really love me and you are going to be so blessed. Now I know that you really love me. And now you know that, I mean, this is just my commentary. <laughs> and now you really know that you, that you really do love me. And so everything is based on asking the question, what type of faith is exemplified by Abraham? Is this the type of faith that we want to emulate? And of course, in this book, it seems to be the case that Kierkegaard says, yes, absolutely, absolutely. All right, let's move on. Uh, of course, we're going to continue talking about this here. Uh, sure. Love, go ahead. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so, so it, just to return to what I said before, um, Kierkegaard, or the reader of this book is supposed to assume that the reader of fear and trembling is supposed to assume that Abraham is the archetype of faith. That if you want to know what faith is, look at Abraham. And really, this is kind of the way Paul describes Abraham too. Uh, Abraham is treated as faith uh, exemplified. So, and yet the example of Abraham's faith is this incredibly disturbing story. Uh, and this is what Kierkegaard is going to use to shipwreck Hegelianism in the behind this book. Anyway, but anyway, so so we want to see what Kierkegaard seems to say uh, about Abraham's faith. Like, what does he make of this? It's really not obvious how to get anything good out of this passage. It's such a disturbing passage. Um, yeah, and yet it's it's really the fount. It's it's the source. To, that we go to to figure out what Abraham's faith was. And then we go to Abraham to figure out what faith was. And so we're kind of stuck with it. It's very strange. Okay, well, uh, so one of the things that, that our author notices that Kierkegaard does is that Kierkegaard connects risk and love together in such a way that you can't really have love and commitment without also reckoning on the risks that you're taking. We can say that what he's saying, what our author agrees with, and, um, and, he, and he gives Kierkegaard credit for demonstrating, is that is that risk is just a part of love and commitment. Um, so, one example one example of that is that Kierkegaard somewhere writes that before a bridal couple, before they go to the house where the wedding reception is held, they should go to the house of sorrow. That is to earnest consideration. From which one does not obtain the bridal veil, but the resolution. Because any marriage, any marriage is uh, it's the beginning of a life together, and a life together will involve hardship, and will eventually come to an end. Uh, and so, and so that's part of that's part of that's part of what it means to get into a relationship. Um, okay, so Kierkegaard seems to be aware of this, uh, and one of the key words we're using here from our author is this concept of a life-defining commitment. It's a life-defining commitment, he says. Um, it, it's it's a commitment to something that that becomes part of who you are and what you are. That I am the one who has made these particular commitments with my life. Uh, and what's very strange about Abraham is that Abraham has made the life-defining commitment to to nurture and care for Isaac. Isaac is the one upon whom all of Abraham's hopes. Are laid. Isaac's been, or Abraham's been promised that he'll be the father of many nations in the biblical story, uh, that he won't have to give his possessions to a servant, that he'll be able to pass on his great wealth to a son. And he has a son in his old age 
Um, so it's his to see Isaac prosper is a life-defining commitment for Abraham. So what does it mean for Abraham to receive what he considers to be a message from God to kill Isaac and then to obey that message and only to be stopped at the last moment after he was fully resolved to do it? What does that mean? It means that Abraham's not only killing Isaac, he's killing himself. He, as a person whose commitment, his life-defining commitment is to Isaac. In killing Isaac, he is no longer the person he was the moment before. And so, and even though Isaac doesn't actually perish, arguably Abraham's life-defining commitment perishes in the sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham suffers an existential death, in a sense, along the way. Um, in 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 the in the act of this story, so. Yes, so I think what this story illustrates, and again, this is just one way to read it. There are many other possible, even subversive readings of this passage, but we're just going with the most traditional one that Kierkegaard was working with, right? So the idea here illustrated is that we must give up the finite. And the finite is what Isaac represents. And we must do this in order to uh, get the reward, which is eternal, which is God, right? So the reward of giving up what is finite is that you are with God. You're approved by God and you're with God. That is what is supposed to be illustrated and commended in this particular reading of the story. Of course, it's, uh, it's very much problematic in many ways. But that's what we're working with today. Yeah, and so our author gives Kierkegaard credit for, for saying, you know, love involves risk, basically. But then he wants to criticize Kierkegaard heavily because Kierkegaard nevertheless takes a path uh, in this book of defining faith as a way to overcome loss, to be invincible from to loss, to be such that you can never suffer an actual loss. Um, so here's a quote from our author. He says, Kierkegaard himself ultimately subscribes to a version of the religious ideal of being absolved from the pain of loss. Uh, yeah, this absolution does not take place through detachment, but rather through faith in God's power to redeem anything that's lost. Religious faith would thus enable you to be wholeheartedly committed and live with the danger of loss without being defeated by any actual loss. Um, and and, and in, in many ways, this, that's what this book is all about, That uh, this book called This Life. It's about this religious instinct to somehow defend ourselves against the possibility of loss by finding a way to secure ourselves in an eternal future from any loss and, and asking what are the consequences of that approach to life, life in light of eternal life? What are those consequences now? And are they destructive or, or helpful? And uh, we're gonna see that in, the, in this account of Abraham's faith, they're actually very destructive. It's, it's, it, it really will become the faith of a psychopath. Yeah. Uh, I think this is another quote that I uh, highlighted here. It says, as long as you keep religious faith, notice religious faith, not secular faith. As long as you keep religious faith, you cannot be defeated by loss. So again, according to Kierkegaard here, this is the supremacy of faith, right? Faith makes you invisible. If you have true living faith, radical faith in God, then you are protected from loss. You cannot be defeated by loss. You cannot uh, be defeated by despair. You basically become invincible in virtue of this religious faith in God. Yeah, yeah. So, so to summarize this, this sort of topic here, um, Kierkegaard has on the one hand shown that love and relationships involve the possibility of loss that's part of what they are and on the other hand he's he's described a form of faith that defeats the possibility of loss 
So the question is, does defeating the possibility of loss also defeat the possibility of any actual love and fellowship with one another? <laughs> does it poison the present? If you take it close enough, uh, if you take it, if you take it seriously, that's the concern here. Yeah. Okay. Let's continue then. Um, so as I said before, uh, for Abraham, being the father of Isaac is a life-defining commitment for him. That's who he is. That's who he's become. And in the act of killing Isaac or nearly killing Isaac, he's, he's in a way destroying who he actually is. Uh, yeah. And so, and so it's, it's more than just like what happens to Isaac. It's what happens to Abraham as well that's of interest here. Yeah. So in secular faith, he says, in secular faith, I can lose my object of devotion, even if I keep faith. In contrast, Kierkegaard advocates a religious faith that cannot ever lose its object of devotion as long as it keeps faith. And then he says, to live with such anxiety, which is intrinsic to any form of secular faith, is according to Kierkegaard, to live in despair. Yeah. And despair is considered uh, to be bad <laughs> and uh, universal. It's a bit of a guard joke. Um, here's another quote from our book. He says, a living religious faith must be able to overcome even the most extreme loss without recourse to anything other than faith in God. If you have faith in God, no circumstance can bring you to despair. Um, if you have faith in God, you cannot be broken. Now, secular faith is very different. Secular faith doesn't advertise a sort of invincibility. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it lives in light of finitude. Finitude is living in light of the fact that we'll all die and living in light of the fact that we depend upon one another. None of us is invincible. Um, secular faith admits that this is the case up front and tries to come up with something to do next. It makes life-defining commitments. Um, and, and, and those are meaningful commitments and they don't promise, uh, they don't promise never to be heartbroken. Um, yeah, so one of the, I'll read another quote that our author says, he says, to have a life-defining commitment is to acknowledge that I'm not self-sufficient, but essentially a relational being. My identity is not given, but relies on forms of recognition that must be upheld and transformed and that remain fragile at their core. My life-defining commitments give me a world and an identity, but they also under, underline my finitude and the risk that my world can break down. So uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of like a, almost a Sunday school level phrase that pops to mind, which is the idea that the wise man builds his house upon the rock. <laughs> and um, okay, that may be so. But what if we are building our houses in the desert and there's no rocks to work with? <laughs> but we, secular faith is taking, uh, is sort of taking stock of where we really are, what our vulnerabilities really are, and just getting on with it um, rather than trying to find a way to defeat them. Yeah. So Kierkegaard has a two-step like if you want to have this invincibility of faith, if you want to have this amazing faith, like Abraham's faith, and you want to, you know, be approved by God and you want to be a model of faith, he has this two-step uh, recipe for having invincible faith. It consists of two movements. The first movement is called infinite resignation. The second movement, the movement of faith. Let's talk about those. All right, first movement infinite resignation. The first movement of religious faith is what Kierkegaard calls infinite resignation. To make this movement, you must demonstrate to yourself that you are willing to give up everything that is finite for the sake of eternal happiness. Yeah, and in a sense, that's what Abraham does. When Abraham sets out to sacrifice Isaac and 
nearly does and totally would have if he hadn't been stopped by a divine message, according to the story. Uh, he demonstrates to himself and to when else is watching up to and including Isaac and God that that he is willing to give up the most important thing that he has, his son. Um, now, what is that? I've been saying, I've been talking about how this is a way to damage or destroy his life-defining commitment. So it seems that um, it seems that this movement of infinite resignation, it doesn't actually require you to uh, to actually give up anything. To act, you don't actually have to sacrifice anything in order to make this movement. But what you do have to do is somehow shatter your um, your life-defining commitments in such a way that they are qualified by the fact that you that they're not really real commitments after all, that you would give them up if called upon for the sake of eternal happiness. Um, and that's kind of sort of stepping outside of, uh, of Kierkegaard's perspective here, but that's, that's got to really change who you are. If, you, if you're going to actually take this step of infinite resignation, it's going to change you to a different person. Um, Yeah, so again, this is what you're supposed to do if you're going to have this type of religious faith, right? Not secular faith, but religious faith. Okay, so here's something yeah, else. That I, he, mm -hmm. Before you go to the next one, um, he talks about monasticism. So some people think that infinite resignation means monasticism, where you mm. withdraw from the world and, and withhold different pleasures. You don't eat certain foods. You don't get married or whatever aestheticism, monasticism. And Kierkegaard says, that's not infinite resignation. You don't actually have to withdraw. It's all about your willingness to release these things if called upon. It's a, it's a, it's a posture, not actually an action. Yeah, I think he says something along the lines that if you were to do that, that demonstrate that your faith is weak, right? Because you're essentially saying that you need a certain type of environment to be able to have this, this religious faith, right? And Kierkegaard contends that you should be able to have this type of faith anywhere in the city, not in the desert with a bunch of believers around you, right? So you're supposed to be able to do this anywhere. So if, if you show that you need a system like monasticism, then that just shows that your faith is not that strong to begin with. In his view, right? Yeah. And I, let me add something of my own here. Um, this sort of move of infinite resignation, I'm not, I almost want to call it um, like the totalitarian, totalitarian instinct of religious faith. <laughs> that this idea that everything that's in front of you is finite and, temp and temporal. The eternity ahead of you is infinite in value and in extent. And so if eternity calls upon you, you must renounce whatever's in front of you. It's this sort of trump card that um, that eternal things are obviously more important than whatever's right in front of you from this perspective. And you need to be willing to give them up, um, to, that you need to have made this move of infinite resignation to be a true believer. And I, I, I call it, I'm calling it this totalitarian instinct to put it in an unflattering light because I don't think it's very good. <laughs> I don't think it's a good way to go. I think that people can have a moral intuition that what's in front of them right now is actually very important, especially when it involves someone else who's depending on you or some vulnerabilities. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if you and I have both been around church, churches for most of our lives, and, and how, how much have you heard this sort of from the pulpit, somebody preaching along the lines of the value of this versus the value of eternity? Does it sound familiar to you at all? Somewhat, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, so now I wanna read uh, another quote that reminds me of chapter one, or maybe the introduction, I don't remember. But here our philosopher states, this is not Kierkegaard. If you are now willing to sacrifice the finite for the eternal, your living faith, the faith that is revealed by how you actually respond to what happens is secular. 
rather than religious. Okay, let's stop there. I like this because sometimes you can convince yourself that you believe A, B, and C, but then if you look at your actions, they reveal that actually you do not believe any of those things. You do not. And so it is absolutely possible, according to chapter one in the introduction, to be a religious person and to believe that you have a religious faith, right? Like, like the way it's defined in the book, but in reality, practice more of a secular faith. So, for example, you're doing things to help the poor, not because, you know, God's telling you that you need to do this or because you believe that there's going to be a reward in the afterlife or that there's going to be punishment if you don't do these things. But you do it because to you, it's the right thing to do. You're like, why would I not help these people? Why would I not care about the planet? You're not coming up with a theology that says, well, I mean, everything's going to be destroyed and burned anyways. Who cares? Or you're not saying, well, the golden rule says that I need to be nice to people. I guess I'm going to do it. But if there were no golden rule, oh, man, I would definitely not do it. But there is a golden rule, so I guess I have to. So it is absolutely possible to be a religious person and function using this concept of secular faith. So you can be a person whose fidelity is secular rather than religious. And I think that's actually a good thing. I think it's a really good thing that that possibility exists. Yeah, I would go even further. And I've sort of said this in the previous episodes that in response to this book, I'm starting to rethink what I think about the Holy Spirit in Christianity. And I think that the, the power of the spirit at work in a person is the power, is, is, could easily be described as the power of secular faith the power to love others as ends in themselves, the power to act in the present in a way that gives due value to the present um, without thought of future reward or, or any sort of a calculus on eternity. Um, yeah. Uh, let me finish the quote. I only read half. So he says, you may profess that you believe in God and eternity, but as long as you are not ready to renounce the finite your supposed religious faith is dead, a matter of mere words. So in other words, your actions prove that in this case, your, your faith is actually secular rather than religious. Obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think that like is renouncing the finite what we're really wanting to be all about here? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, living in light of death and acknowledging our dependence upon each other, you know, and doing our part for those who depend upon us. Like, I don't see, I don't, I can't think of anything holier than that to take, to carry out those, those that work of caring for those who depend upon us, of making mm -hmm. the most of, of the time we have. Um, I don't, I don't see any moral value to renouncing the finite. All I see is utilitarian value which is, which is um, largely amoral or selfish. So, so, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to this concept of secular faith. Um, and I'm really sympathetic to this criticism he has of the faith that Kierkegaard describes in that book. That said, I am a Soren Kierkegaard fanboy, but um, I take comfort in that we're criticizing a, a pseudonym. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to the next step, okay? So the first movement is infinite resignation. The second one is the movement of faith. Okay, can you explain what that is and how that works? Okay, so the first movement, infinite resignation, is to renounce the finite or be willing to renounce the finite. So basically to hold things that are finite very loosely um, to become resigned towards them. And this means that you're willing to lose everything. Um, however, there's a second movement, which is the idea that even though it's absurd from a human perspective, because of the power of God, because this is the key phrase, because everything is possible for God, 
we should still have hope that we'll receive back everything we've lost. Um, and Kierkegaard uses the, uses the phrase in virtue of the absurd. So the idea here is that Abraham was infinite. He took the step of infinite resignation. He was willing to lose Isaac. But he had the second step. The second step was that he also believed that the promises of God to him were true. He also believed that through Isaac, he would become the father of many nations. So he believed that one on the one hand that he that he was um, that he has, was resigned to losing Isaac, and then he believed on the other hand that God's promises would come true to him through Isaac, aka that he would receive Isaac back. And because these two things are contradictory, Isaac is either going to live or die. Um, he he believed that he could receive Isaac back in virtue of the absurd. So in, in a nutshell, the second movement of faith, or the second movement called the movement of faith, is to believe or hope that we can receive back the very things that we've been resigned to lose. Uh, because everything, literally because everything is possible for God. Now, I don't know if possibility is a great source of hope. I would be more interested in necessity or actuality. Um, just because something's possible for God doesn't mean God's going to do it. But, but that's the sort of faith, that's the second movement of faith, to trust that, that everything is possible for God. And so anything that we lose can actually be regained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, this is supposed to be the model for believers, right? Like if you're a believer, you should try to emulate this type of faith. This is living faith. This is faith that is strongest and deepest, right? That's the idea. So Kierkegaard apparently had this idea of what he called the night of faith. The night of faith. The night of faith is someone who is utterly committed to finite life. Okay? So think about that. Think of a person who is utterly committed to finite life, but this night of faith is somebody who has religious faith. What what is the problem here? Where is the what is the incongruity here that we see? So the night of faith. Uh, this is a, this is a rhetorical device that Kierkegaard uses that I actually really like a lot. He takes this concept and then he just and he sort of paints the picture of somebody who illustrates that concept to the extreme. And he calls them a knight. <laughs> so the knight of infinite resignation is somebody who has taken the step of infinite resignation. And the knight of faith is somebody who, in addition to the step of infinite resignation, is also believed that because all things are possible for God, that he'll receive back what he's lost. So the knight of faith has made the double movement of faith, both steps. Um, he fully, here's the quote, he fully expects to receive the finite even after having given it up. Now this, now, if you are the knight of infinite resignation, you give up or you're willing to give something up, you have a sense of loss. You have a sense that I've, if you're, if Abraham was just the knight of infinite resignation, then Abraham would have lamented losing Isaac. He would just be sad to have lost Isaac, but it would be important enough for him to, to give him up. So he would still give him up, but he would have the sense that Isaac is lost forever. Um, Abraham, as the knight of faith, doesn't really think he's going to lose Isaac. He's resolved to lose Isaac, but he's leaving it to God, through whom all things are possible, to return Isaac to him. Um, in a sense, he is completely out of touch the, with the gravity of what he's about to do because he still thinks it's possible for God to undo it. This is like, this is literally Jesus take the wheel theology. This famous song. <laughs> you, just, you just let go of the wheel, infinite resignation, and just hope that Jesus will drive the car safely through your car crash thing. <laughs> and... Uh, Anyway, it's 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 a and to use another car metaphor, it's like gas and brakes. Like you're you're both expecting to lose and to receive back the same thing. Um, so you don't actually take the loss 
as final as the final loss that it might actually be. Great, thank you. So from a secular faith perspective, what is wrong with the picture here of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac? Well, the problem is that this is making you or turning you into a person that doesn't care about the object of your deepest love. And it makes you the type of person that is willing to do something brutal, that is willing to be indifferent to the fate of the object of your love. So that is the critique that is at play here. Here's a great example of it. Think of this in terms of evangelical Christianity, especially dispensational theology and the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. If you're a religious person who thinks, who's so heavenly minded that you think that this earth is going to burn up and that God's going to give us a new earth, you become infinitely resigned to the fate of this planet. And yet you expect to receive it back in virtue of the absurd. <laughs> and you just become, you become part of the, of the many forces at work that are sort of sending us all towards the brink with no sense of responsibility. And honestly, really with no concern for what happens next. You just believe that we're going to receive a new heaven and a new earth back in virtue of the absurd. Um, that's it. That's this is the this is the religious faith um, that that has a role to play in our current crisis. Yeah. So practicing this type of religious faith dehumanizes the believer because it turns you into somebody that is indifferent to what happens to those you love, as long as you get what you're believing God for or whatever, right? So this is not good from the secular faith perspective. We do not want to be this type of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let me just, uh, let me just make a sidebar here. Um, it's a little bit off topic quote came up in the book around this time. If you pull the book Fear and Trembling off the shelf uh, and you read the first say five pages, what you'll find is that Kierkegaard describes the story of Isaac. I think he describes it four times from sort of four different perspectives. Um, and when I read one of those descriptions for the first time, it just blew me away. I was, I was shaking as I, as I finished reading this like this page. And here's what, here's, what, here's what Kierkegaard does, and I think this is so brilliant. He describes the story of Abraham taking Isaac up to sacrifice him. Um, and when Isaac doesn't understand what's going on, Abraham pretends to be, here's the quote, our author describes it as well. He says, Abraham instead pretends to be a madman who wants to kill Isaac out of his own desire, so as to spare Isaac the anguish of being sentenced to death by God himself. So, and this, this blew me away when I read it first for the first time in Kierkegaard. This is maybe the first five pages of Kierkegaard I'd ever read, and I realized this man, this man was brilliant. He, has this, he had this picture of Abraham should have been ashamed of the God who asked him to sacrifice Isaac, and he should have wanted to shield Isaac from the knowledge that God is so terrible as to ask for the sacrifice. It would be better for Isaac to, to die as somebody knowing that he was murdered than to die as somebody knowing that God had called for his sacrifice. Better to cover for God in this state. And that's amazing to me. And I think this is actually, it's a great test in theology. When you, when you have a theology of some sort, you have to ask yourself, am I covering for God here? Am I trying to make God look better than I actually believe God is? Because I'm worried that I can't share that with other people. I don't want them to see what God is really like because it's just so horrible. Um, you've got me reading a book by David Bentley Hart right now. What's it called? All That Also Be Saved or something? Yeah. Yeah. It's a 2019 book. Uh, 
I don't know. It was published within the last two years. I don't remember. A year and a half. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, for, for I'm, I'm midway through it, but for like for all of its strengths and, and, and weaknesses, there's not very many weaknesses, honestly. But um, I think that's what this book really does. What this author does really well, or David Bentley Hart does really well, is he he gives you a reason to be ashamed of some of the theology you might have, and to face up to the fact that you're actually probably hiding the nastiness of the gods you're worshiping from the people you're preaching to, because just like Abraham pretending to be a murderer rather than a devout man of faith, <laughs> just for the sake of covering for God for for Isaac. Mm-hmm. It's remarkable. Uh, excellent, excellent application. A plus. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mean, I think this is a really good way to approach theology. I mean, I just, I just think about Paul's prayers. I know they're just prayers, right? There's Paul's prayers in the epistles. And one of them says that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And if you ask people, do you believe this? Yes, I believe this. I absolutely believe this. But then they give you this picture of Judgment Day and what happens after Judgment Day. And you look at the picture like, this is the best that God can do? Really? (laughs) This right here that you're painting before me, that you're preaching, I mean, this is the best that God can do. I can easily imagine a way better outcome. (laughs) So, yeah, absolutely. And I know many times you have talked about different ways of defining God and how one way to define God is uh, God is that which is worth worshiping, right? Like God must be worthy of worship. And if in some way we deem God not to be worthy of worship, then that shows us that there's something wrong with our theology. There's something wrong with our theology. Some kind of work needs to happen there. I, I believe that 100%. Absolutely. So thank you for bringing that into this. Next. We should redefine the night of faith a little bit differently. Um, Abraham, as the night of faith, as the one who says to God, will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? How's that for a night of faith? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting that in the Bible, I mean, the Bible de- depicts the, the, the men of faith, right? and women of faith, a few, but mostly the men of faith, obviously, uh, having interactions with God. I mean, some of them, they convince God not to do what he has in mind, right? Like, for example, Moses, I am fed up with this nation. I'm going to kill them all, and I'm starting over. I'm going to build a great nation through you, Moses. I am so fed up with this idol worshipers here. And then, quote, unquote, Moses has to convince God not to do that. No, Lord, don't do that. If you do this, the nations around us, We'll say that you pull the Israelites here and there's just so you could kill them. And you're going to look really bad. <laughs> you're going to look really bad in the pantheon of ancient deities. <laughs> Can't do that. Make yourself look good. Just forgive them for your own mercy. I mean, I hate him as much as you do, I think. But let's just give him <laughs> another chance. So... It would have been really nice if Abraham had had such a response. If yeah. he had been saying, you know what? No. Mm-mm. I am not killing Isaac. Why don't you just kill me right now? Seriously. Kill me and then bless Isaac or whatever. That would have been much, much better. But that's not what happens in the story, right? Yeah. No, the story goes quite badly. Um it's a stumbling block, uh, and uh, and stumbling blocks can be helpful. Like we're never going to erase the story. We're never going to forget this story. We're never going to like cut it out of the Bible and say, "Moving on." Like we'll never move on. Um, but the way that we analyze it is not going to be, in a healthy case, uh, do what Abraham did. <laughs> we gotta we gotta do better than that. Um, yeah, and honestly, I think that uh, I think that this author's critique of Kierkegaard's conception of faith in this book, which I'm not sure is Kierkegaard's sober conception of faith, or if it's used as a way to reduce Hegelianism to absurdity, um, I don't think we want to do this either. I don't recommend 
taking the movement of infinite resignation. I don't recommend expecting that we can receive everything back in virtue of the absurd um, because all things are possible for God. I don't recommend a kind of faith that leads to invulnerability, that leads to sort of, that has a perspective of God as God is impassable, untouchable, unharmable, and tries to make us the same as that. Uh, I think that I think that the theology of the future and, and one worth having has God as vulnerable to loss and to our, and to the and to harm in that the gospel almost can be reduced to the to the thought that we have that God has made God's self vulnerable and we have harmed God and what happens next. Um, these are all about finite projects that are vulnerable to failure. Well, we can talk about universalism another week, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, but 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 yeah, this double movement of religious faith um, not recommended, in my opinion. Yeah. So you give it a two thumbs down, I hear. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, I do, yeah, and it's kind of strange because it seems like it seems like it really captures the religious instinct that many people have is to that go to church every Sunday and you get conditioned to be prepared to give up whatever God asks you to give up. Um, mm -hmm. You get this totalitarian instinct sort of bred into you. And when the time comes, you should be ready to give up whatever God asks you to give up. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. Uh, to be a believer or to be a Christian is to be someone who is cooperative to the impulses of the spirit of God in the world today. But I don't think the spirit of God is in the business of having us detach from this world for the sake of the eternal, but rather to have us love people, love finite people in their frailty and in our own frailty by the power of God. This is a very, this otherwise known as secular faith. So, this obedience that's called that we're called on the obedience that's required of us is the obedience of secular faith it's not it's the it's obedience to form our life forming commitments in a way uh, that values what god values that values who god values which is usually the surprising people to value um it's not this detachment from all these things for the sake of the eternal it's a it's a it's a life of attachment not a life of detachment yeah great well let's talk about jesus and what do we learn when we put jesus into this picture what do we think about the incarnation the whole event of salvation i suppose that the gospel proclaims okay so i'm not quite sure what to say about this so our author tries to pin the same kind of logic on, on Jesus. Jesus says some very harsh things. Like he says, um, our author points that Jesus says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Um, we have Jesus having a lot of phrases like this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. And so on. So it sounds like Jesus is calling for infinite resignation in some cases. It also sounds like Jesus is calling for the idea that through God, all things are possible. Uh, and so that we can receive back what we've lost. And, and I'm actually reminded um, of the accounts of Jesus in Gethsemane where he is struggling with what's being asked of him. He's being asked to surrender to the authorities for the sake of his mission to Israel. Mm -hmm. And he literally, this is where the phrase comes from, like, with you, all things are possible. Am I not mistaken on that? There's another time where the disciples say, how could anybody be saved? When he talks about which people can't enter the kingdom of heaven, he says, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I'm talking about wealthy people entering the kingdom, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, so the, the, I mean, the real question is, is Jesus promoting Kierkegaard's double movement of faith? 
is Jesus practicing Kierkegaard's double movement of faith? What do you think? I mean, I'll say something in a second. But... Well, I mean, I think uh, the story of Jesus can be read and interpreted in many ways. There are definitely uh, philosophers and theologians, they're called radical theologians or whatever, who advocate uh, the kind of reading that that says that when Jesus died on the cross, God basically died and all that is left is the Holy Spirit, which is kind of like our love or our fellowship with one another. So there's a number of what I would call secular readings available. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's hard. It's hard to judge the comments made here. I think you can read the story of Jesus in such a way, but you can also do the opposite because I think the story of Jesus is showing us that God cares. That God cares. That God gets involved. That God suffers with us in solidarity, right? A Molmanian read, I guess, of the gospel. So, yeah, I mean, you could also do the opposite reading. So I think it's largely up to you which way you read and interpret these things. But I would say overall, overall, the church has traditionally viewed the events of the passion as events of salvation, the love of God coming close to heal and save and redeem. And I think that's correct. That's largely correct. I think it is possible, however, to have this orthodox take on the gospel in such a way that we devalue or diminish the humanity of Jesus and what he suffered. Because after all, he was just God, right? He didn't really suffer. No, he did not truly feel forsaken on the cross. So yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's difficult, but uh, I can definitely see how people make comments like this one that our philosopher makes. He says, what the crucifixion reveals then is the emptiness of divine love. The reason God has abandoned his son is that he could never care about him in the first place. It makes no difference to God that his beloved son is tortured and put to death. Curiously enough, he is eternally just the same. Yes, I can see that. But I mean, you don't have to take this reading and this interpretation, but I can see how people do this. Okay, how about this? Let me argue that Jesus is the exemplar of secular faith. Let me see if I can do this. <laughs> Let's try it. <laughs> Okay. Um, so secular faith is basically commitment to projects that can fail. Mm -hmm. A life commitment to projects that can fail and making the most of those lives. And I would say that in the case of Jesus, what we have is a man. Let's just say he's a man to get started. Maybe we'll end there. We'll see. Um, we have a man in the ancient world who was swept up in his concept of the goodness of God. He had a sense of the love mm -hmm. of God for Israel and for the world mm -hmm. and for people who were, who were surprisingly um, out of sight and kept out of mind. And he committed his life, not to some cosmic scheme of salvation, but to a mission to his own people to confront them and invite them into this goodness of God, the love of God. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why he was killed was because the leaders of his people were not interested in this project of his. They didn't want to surrender their plans to his portrait of the goodness of God and the love of God. Uh, and he was not willing to give up on that either. <laughs> and so what we have with Jesus is somebody who's driven by the spirit of God, who's focused on the value of people right in front of him mm -hmm. who's not going on and on about their eternal soul 
and, and how mm -hmm. they're instrumentally valuable, but treats people as if they're actually valuable, who loves people as an end in themselves, um, and who loves his nation as an end in itself as well, and who commits himself to this project that can't that it will likely fail. Guess what? It does fail. So Jesus has a life-defining commitment to his people, to the goodness of God, and he and he stays true to them his whole life. And the natural outcome of such a life in that context is death. Um, and it's a meaningful death because it's his own choice. It's inconsistent. It's consistent with, with what he's committed himself to. Uh, so yeah, it's very easy to look at the, at the life of Jesus as a life of, of secular faith in that sense. Now, our author doesn't use, um, he doesn't use eternal life in much for, he doesn't have, see much value in it. Like largely the book is about trying to detach and decouple this life from eternal life. Mm. Um, but for Jesus, the goodness of God and the presence of God, the presence of God and the love of God in this finite life with these finite people dependent upon one another um, also served as a source of hope for eternal life. Jesus knew that his resources were limited and that it would require an act of God to achieve the things that he believed needed to be achieved. Um, and this is where we get this sort of apocalypticism in, in the Gospels, where Jesus has an apocalyptic expectation that God will ultimately achieve what God values, um, regardless of whether or not the mission of Jesus is successful, but that doesn't mean he doesn't pour himself into it. Um, and, he also and he also draws hope from that. Uh, hope for for an eternal life and for and for an ultimate um, righting of wrongs, but that never leads him to delay to delay getting things right now. He doesn't have this sort of otherworldliness to him either, which is very strange uh, given the role he plays in, in religion later. I'll say one more thing to say about this: um, Jesus dies, and the gospel writers give him different last words. So the Gospel of Matthew and Mark say that Jesus dies with a lament saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. In Luke, Jesus dies in a more noble philosopher death saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And in John, I'm not, and John has him saying something like, it is finished, I forget. Um, but I don't take that as, as, as historical uh, necessarily. Okay, so let's look at Luke versus Matthew Mark. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a real disappointment about the present state of affairs, not a confident everything's fine because of eternity uh, sort of answer, right? It's, it's, a, it's a cry of secular faith, of a faith mm -hmm. that's, that's being disappointed, of, the, of a faith that is in the, in the throes of vulnerability and loss. Um, it is not Kierkegaard's double movement of faith, and it's not an invincible faith. And also, there's no better example of it for us to follow either. So, so that's interesting as well. In the case of Luke, um, into your hands I commend my spirit. Even there, I don't really see a triumphant, a triumphalism. I kind of see, uh, nevertheless, I've been, uh, in spite of feeling forsaken, nevertheless, I entrust myself to God. And this is largely what secular faith does as well. So it says that my life is finite, death is upon me. I'm dependent on others. Nevertheless, I will have life-forming commitments and, they, and, and they'll be meaningful, even though they're vulnerable to failure. Um, it's an admission that you're vulnerable and you depend on others. In this case, his father. Um, yeah, so I don't know if this author, friend, if this author of ours ever listens, I don't know if you'll think that was garbage or not, but <laughs> I think that there's, there's a dissertation to be written on this, uh, that Jesus has secular faith. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that works. I think your reading works. Obviously, it's not one that would advance the, <laughs> the goal of the book, but I think, I think you're largely right. Absolutely. I, I like that. I like that. Okay, what well, about time um, we talk about Paul? We finish off with Paul versus Abraham. 
because last time we were talking about this and we were thinking about what are we going to say for this episode and one of us said something like maybe Paul should be our knight of faith and not him. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Paul. All right, so we wrote here, Paul speaks a great deal about comfort and strength available in the spirit rather than through a double movement of faith of the form described here. So Paul is a figure that is very similar to Jesus in many ways. Obviously, he's also different, but he's very similar in some ways. He experienced the highs and lows of religious experience. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where he talks about just uh, being so overwhelmed that he felt like he was close to death. Yet, through faith, through fellowship with his coworkers, through fellowship in the Holy Spirit, somehow he's able to derive comfort from God and from the people around him. And he is able to use that very same comfort to comfort others. That's the passage that I had in mind. How do we put that in here? Yeah, yeah. So we got to ask ourselves, is Paul a knight of infinite resignation? Um, I don't think so. Like, it's not so much that he's, so Paul gives up a lot, right? He gives up his status as an educated Jewish teacher or theologian or whatever. They didn't really have theologians back then, but um, he gives up his credibility in that community. Mm -hmm. He gives up, like, he gives up like, maybe having a family, having a wife, having a house. Mm -hmm. He travels all the time. He's in danger. This is not, but it's not a life of infinite resignation. It's not like he just neglected to buy a house or neglected to join a regular synagogue or neglected or just, he didn't, he didn't leave things out of his life. He filled his life with a commitment, a life-forming commitment, basically to share the good news of Jesus to people who were outside of the current circle of the church at the time, which was the Jewish church in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. Um, even so, it, he, he has some complicated things to say about how he really wants to his own people to accept the good news of Jesus. Um, and even his work to the nations is also, in a sense, meant to, to challenge his own people. So anyway, like I'm, all I'm trying to say here is that I don't see infinite resignation in Paul. I see a dedication to real people and their real that are really in front of him. It's a, he's, he's made, he's just making choices, uh, choices that are led by the spirit of God. Yeah. Paul, I think in Romans, right? Romans chapter nine, he speaks of being willing to be cut off from Christ for the sake of Israel. Yes. And that's a, that passage that's sort of like, Paul, don't you realize that you won't have eternal life if you get that wish granted? <laughs> sort of, it, it, it reels a little bit of a, like a stumbling block for the religious mind to understand what kind of mind, what, what, could, how, what could Paul, what could make him possibly say something like that? Um, yeah, a secular faith, a faith that values his people uh, so mm. highly Mm. And so directly, not in an instrumental way. Mm. Certainly not for his mm -hmm. future reward. <laughs> yeah. Remarkable. Um, and yet, and yet we have this apocalypticism, right? So when we read the New Testament, even in evangelicals, maybe not so aware of this, the, the sort of apocalyptic perspective that's sort of permeating what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what what they're saying um there needs to be some thought about how that connects to secular faith or works against it it could be a bit of a contradiction at play as well 
But um, an apocalyptic perspective, if I'm trying to like define it, it's roughly the idea that the way things are is not exactly the way things seem. It's this idea that behind behind this like tax collecting booth and this market and this temple and these nations and Rome and whatever, there is there are spiritual powers at work. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a movement and plan of God at work in history. Uh, and so apocalypse is an unveiling. It's a sort of a pulling away of the curtain so you can see what's behind it. And and I guess Jesus and Paul, they both, when, if you want to say that they're apocalyptic, it's that they really see God at work behind the world events and the, that are affecting Israel and affecting the nations around them. Does this count as sort of punting to eternity, a religious instinct? Or is it just another interpretation of the finitude in which we all live and the meaning and, and assigning meaning to it? Like that's, that's something that maybe we could debate. Great questions. Okay, so this is going to be the last episode that we spent on this book. Uh, let's maybe give a few concluding words on this book. What do we think of it? That we, what did we learn from it? Yeah, for me, I really loved it. Um, to be fair, we're only really talking about the first half where they talk directly about religious um, religious faith, but uh, I think I think I can put it this way. Um, the things that I value in my Christian faith turned out to be secular. And the things that I'm kind of suspicious of turned out to be religious in the nomenclature of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is easily on the top 10 books that I've ever read. I've read it twice. And I think uh, the challenge presented here for religious faith, all sorts of religious faith, right? Is one that we need to hear, one that we need to listen to and adapt to. We have much to learn from a mode of secular faith or secular fidelity. I like that better, secular fidelity. That is something that we need to go after. It, it just makes more sense. I encourage you all to get a copy, read it, and see what it does for you. It, it will, definitely, will definitely change how you see things, whether you embrace it or reject it ultimately. But I think it's a fantastic, fantastic book. All right. Well, thanks for pointing me to it. Well, thank you for reading it. Thank you for discussing it with me. Thanks, everyone, for being here for these few chapters. We will see you next time we publish on another episode. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.